This is Still Rowing, a High Five Live podcast, where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in Jesus Christ and His restored church. Hey, Still Rowing friends, this is your new host, Amy Cower. I'm super excited to be here and to be a part of the gathering as we talked about in our last episode with Corey and Kim. Uh, I'm excited to share with you more of my story in a couple of weeks, but for today, we'll leave you on a little cliffhanger, and we're going to talk to Melissa Bausa de Meyer, who lives in Ghent, Belgium. Melissa is married to Dagmar Bausa, and together they have four children and serve as service mission leaders in the Belgium Netherlands mission. Melissa and her husband own their own company, and she manages the operations of that renovation company. She is a published author of six novels, and she loves to spend time with her family, especially her husband. After more than two decades of marriage, they still enjoy regular dates and holding hands as they go for walks together. Thanks for taking the time to be here with us, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to tell you, Melissa is someone that I look up to a lot. She was the Relief Society president at the time I was serving as a missionary in her ward in Ghent, and she just radiates this sense of strength and resilience. Um, I really admired how she always seemed to have capacity to serve those around her, be it her family or our investigators that we would bring or ward members, and I'm excited for you to hear a little bit more about her and how she developed this. Uh, the challenges that she went through, and her testimony that has helped her to persevere through the things that she's been through. So, Melissa, before we dive into your story, could you share with us an experience that you had that helped buoy you up through your life and the things that you've been through? Well, one that pops into my mind um, would probably be when I was about 13, um, my parents had recently separated and um, I was kind of an obnoxious 13 year old and my mom sent me to young women's camp and it was camping. I'm not a camper. (laughs) I really don't like the outdoors that much, but I decided to go because it was young women's camp and I thought it would be, or well, mom thought it would be good for me. And I just went along with the idea. And after about two days of being there, I had my non-member friend with me. Um, I was just done, you know, sleeping in tents and mosquitoes and no showers. And, oh, you know, oh, it was awful. And um, and I went up to my young women's leader and I said to her, I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. It's not fun. I need to go home. And, and by, you know, I was 13. My parents had broken up. Uh, my if I even had a testimony, it was very rocky. I just wanted to go home. I wanted to be with my mom. And my young woman leader said to me, wise woman that she is, she said, you know what? You can go home, but how about you have a pray first and go into your tent all by yourself, get on your knees and ask Heavenly Father what he thinks about it. Wow. Mm-hmm. I still think she's such a wise woman for <laughs> giving me that challenge. And I'm not sure fine because how's that going to change anything so I walked to my tent very determined and sent off my non-member friend because she wasn't going to pray and I said I'll just you know 
go pray for a minute and you start packing, you know, because we're going home. <laughs> and so I went to my tent and I prayed and it wasn't a super long prayer, but it was a sincere prayer. I spoke to Heavenly Father like I was speaking to my young women's leader. And I said, I don't like it here. I want to go home. And I'm asking you <laughs> to tell me I can go home. And even telling you now, I can still feel what I felt in that tent on my knees as an obnoxious 13-year-old kid. I felt that I shouldn't go home. And that was the first time in my life I remember praying and receiving an answer. And it couldn't have come at a better time because my dad had just left. He'd left us in a very difficult situation. And, um, and I received that answer. And I remember for me, that was a turning point because I got out of my tent. My friend was there with her bags half packed. And I said, hey, we're not going home. We're staying. And she's like, what? And we both stayed. We both had a fairly good experience, not the camping, but the testimony building. And she came back the next year with me as well. And um, that was the year I decided I'm going to read the Book of Mormon, because if I can receive uh, an answer to my prayers, all of what I've heard all these years, some of it must be true. And I said, I'm going to read the Book of Mormon. And I started reading it that year. And I decided to read it at least once a year since then. And I have. So I've read the Book of Mormon many, many times. But that was the first time I read it back to cover and really read it. And I received a wonderful, wonderful testimony of the truthfulness of it. So for me, I can relate to Joseph Smith. I can understand having a question, taking it to the Lord and receiving an answer. I love that it was just so genuine, you know, how often do we have those frustrations of, I, this is not fun. I don't want to be doing this. And he heard you and he loved you enough to give you an answer. That's really special. Thank you for sharing that. With that in mind, would you be able to tell us about your growing up years and, you know, you experienced loss and how that all formed your conversion story? Mm -hmm. um, so I was the youngest or I'm the youngest of three kids. Um, my parents didn't have a loving um, relationship. I always thought that we were normal, but I didn't realize we weren't a normal family. Um, we would go to church and you'd hear about families to be together forever. And I struggled with that because I would see the parents who didn't communicate. And my sister, she is about, let me see, almost eight years older than me. And when she was 14, he left home and um, that was hard. And so it was just me and my brother. And then he was sent off to boarding school. So then it was just me. And, you know, you're living with these parents. They don't talk to each other. There's no love. I, I think I can remember maybe once or twice seeing my parents kiss each other. And even then my mom pushed my dad away. It, was, it wasn't a love, loving environment. And my dad was a difficult man. He would all say nasty things to us. He was abusive in the way that he would um, he'd never say anything uplifting. He'd make us feel bad. We were always afraid at home. He would, you know, just one small thing could set him off and he would get angry. So, you know, you did not speak. You were never comfortable. It was a very difficult environment. And then 
when I was 13, finally he, well, finally he left. It was the third time he had left. So we were kind of, I mean, it wasn't something new for us, for our dad to leave, but it was the first time he left for so long. And um, after he left, he um, he lived a very different lifestyle. And it was not at all in accordance to the gospel. When he was home, he wasn't very active either. He never baptized me um, because he wasn't, act- well, he wasn't living the word of wisdom at the time. And um, after he left, he would, you know, go to places where it wasn't okay. And he would take us children there and it wasn't okay for us to be there. But I felt I had a responsibility to see my father. So I went and I continued to visit him. Even though looking back now as an adult, I think like, wow, that's those were not places for him to take a child. You know, mm. it was just not OK. And um, it was hard. It was really, really hard. And then when I was probably about 15 and a half, he started kind of dropping off the grid and it was really, really hard to find him. And then when I was a couple of weeks before my 16th birthday, we got a call and Dad had been all over the place and nowhere, and he had left all of his stuff in a hotel. And the hotel called and said, what do we do? His stuff is here. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do we do? I don't know. I'm 15 years old. What do you mean? What do we do? And apparently he'd left his stuff all there, and he left a letter saying he was going to end his life, and he was gone. So they called the police, and... At this point, I wasn't taking this very seriously because my father had always struggled with mental health issues and he tried or threatened to kill himself many times. But turned out three weeks later, about five days before my 16th birthday, the police came to our house at night. My brother was in bed because we had exams the next day and that was like his way of studying. He went to bed really early, got up early, early, early in the morning, crammed for the exam, and then he thought he was done. So he was in bed at nine in the evening. Mom was out with a friend, and I was there, almost 16 years old, opened the door, police officer was there, told us that dad was dead. And I mean, I didn't even want to let the guy in the house. I was like, hey, he said, can I come in? I have a message for you. I'm like, it's nine o'clock at night. What message could you possibly have to come in the house? I said, no, you're not coming in the house. (laughs) I've been taught well by my mom. (laughs) And, um, And he's like, yes, but I'm police. I said, well, if you're police, then show me your badge. And so he showed his badge. And I said, so what do you have to tell me? And and then he had to spit it out while he stood on the doorstep. I took his badge. I slammed the door in his face. The tears started pouring out of my eyes, all over my face. And I ran to my brother's room. I shoved him almost out of his bed. And I said, this police officer is here. This is his badge. Dad is dead. They found his body. What are we going to do? There were no cell phones. We couldn't call our mom. We were home alone. I mean, you can't blame her. He was 17. I was 16 almost, you know, and we were there. And an hour or two later, mom came home. This man was here. We, you know, we let him in. We found our manners and yeah. And that was just hard. And that wasn't even the beginning of it because when he died, he left us with a pile and a pile of debt that we had to pay off. You know, it was struggles, struggles, struggles. And it was really, really hard. You know, I had looked forward to my 16th birthday. I was finally going to start dating and life was great. 
but it wasn't so great. So that was an interesting part of my childhood. That's a lot to handle. You had that experience as a 13 year old at this point when you heard that your father had ended his own life. Did that, did that send a shockwave through your testimony at all? Or did that affect the way that you felt towards God? I remember my dad died on the 4th of December and I don't know what, I can't exactly remember what day that was, but a couple of days after that, my then my family, most of my family lives in England. So two of my aunts had come immediately after the news broke, you know, Rick, that's my father, has killed himself. They came, dropped everything, left their families, came to be with my mom, bless their heart. And they came with us to church and it was fast and testimony meeting. And because my testimony, you know, I've been reading the Book of Mormon every year and I had prayed and I'd received an answer. So I was super active. I was so powerful in my testimony and it was fast and testimony meeting. And I was usually the first to get up and the first to go there. My dad had just killed himself. I stood up and I went to that pulpit and I stood there. And I cried for a minute and then I bore my testimony because for me, it was rough to deal with this, but it didn't change that God loved me and that he was there. And my dad made a difficult choice and it was what he did, but it didn't change what I knew to be true. And I felt so strong that day that I needed to share my testimony and say it. And I, I have this one aunt, she's lovely, she's wonderful, but she very rarely cries. I've never seen her cry, but that day she was wiping her eyes and she was touched by what she was feeling because the spirit was strong. And, and I just, I couldn't contain it. I knew that despite what we were going through and, and I didn't even know what was still coming, I just knew that God was still there for me and that he loved me and that what happened with my dad had nothing to do with his love for me. It was my dad's choice and it, it affected me. That's the free agency we chose for before we came to this earth. And it's sad and difficult sometimes how someone's choices affect our lives but it doesn't change the plan of Heavenly Father. It doesn't change how he loves us. It doesn't change how he's there for us and how he is working in our lives. And I felt it then and probably didn't understand it completely, but I know it now as well. And as much as that was hard and as much as, you know, I don't have a dad, I didn't have a super good dad figure when he was around. And I have days when I think, you know, I didn't have a father to give me away at my wedding. My children don't have a grandfather. That's not great. But that doesn't change that God loves me and that I have a heavenly father. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's making me tear up. <laughs> How do you feel like God was there for you in those days following that that news that you received that your father was gone? Um, well, we had family that came over and they were there with us. And there was an outpouring of love from lots of members of the church. And, um, and that was 
special. That was very, very special. You know, sometimes it's not the quantity of people. You know, you don't need a whole lot, but just knowing that there is someone there watching over you. At the time when my mom was out, she was out with one of her friends and it was a great friend. And she was an American sister of a couple who had moved here and they were here for, I don't know, maybe six or nine years. And those were the hardest years of our lives. But they were here for those years. They've moved back to the States. We hardly ever speak to them or hear from them. She's not very good at keeping contact. My mom's not a, a great letter writer. But for those hardest years, the Lord sent them here. And they were here for us. I see the Lord's hand in those things. Around this time when I was 13, 14 years old, I met the girl who later became my sister-in-law. They came into my lives when I needed it the most. I met this amazing family that had, how would I put it? I had this great friend who would call me all the time at the time. And I would go over to her house. And all of a sudden, I would see this husband and wife that has an amazingly wonderful relationship. I mean, they've been married for, I don't know, 43, 44 years old. And he still calls his wife a babe. And it's it's funny and it's cute and it's loving. And I had never seen that as a child. I would go to their house and I would see how they genuinely loved each other and cared for each other. And sure, they had arguments. The kids bickered that it was normal. It was a normal family. But I got to see that. I got a glimpse of that. And I felt hope. because. And my house, I thought, well, if this is marriage, I don't want marriage. I'd rather be alone. I'd rather, my mom always told me I didn't get a proper education, so I could not stand on my own two feet and leave your father. She said, not my daughters. My daughters will study. They will educate themselves. They will be able to be, you know, secure in their own ways. And if anything ever happens, they can work for themselves. So I thought, that was the most important thing I could ever do. Get my own education, be financially secure. But when I came and saw my parents-in-law, I saw, wow, love can be something beautiful. Family life can be amazing. And sure, you know, my <laughs> at the time, there were these two young boys and they <laughs> squabbled and fought all the time. But there was love in this house. And I thought, wow, you know, I would see my parents-in-law sit in there in the car and they would hold hands. I'd never seen my parents hold hands, never. It was something that you'd see on a soapy romance movie and you'd think, oh, that's cute while you would sit and eat popcorn, but that's Hollywood, you know, it's not reality. But they had it as reality. They still have it as reality after all these years. And, and I wanted that. I really, really wanted that. And I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe I can have that. And it's funny as I'm telling you that, that's not the reason I fell in love with my husband. But <laughs> he was just super good looking. <laughs> but, um, but it's funny to see, you know, it was just to know that that existed. And to know that if you follow the principles that the gospel teaches you, 
you can have that. And that was just wow. That was a wow moment for me. Really, it was. I also love that it brought hope. And I've also seen healing. You know, like you were saying through other people that have come into your life, I've had similar experiences where individuals have come into my life who have brought enough perspective where I couldn't see it. I didn't feel that hope and that they could help me to get to that place where I could continue to hope and and then find healing. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting too, as you've got your name badge on. Could you explain to us a little bit more about your current calling? Because I think that also plays into this idea of people and how we can help each other. Mm -hmm. So um, February last year, my husband and I were called as service mission leaders. So we serve in Belgium, Netherlands, and we actually... um, It's difficult to explain so short in a few words because I'm so passionate about this calling. But service mission leaders, they help find uh, service missionaries. And they um, so if if a person has the desire to serve, they should be able to serve. And we have always, as Church of Jesus Christ, sent our missionaries to foreign places and they learn a different language and we envision a mission as being, oh, where are you serving and to what country are you going? But there is a huge group of young men and young women who have the desire to serve, but might have a certain, and I I like to use the word challenge, that prevents them from leaving their home and serving away from home. And that challenge might be that they struggle with anxiety or they struggle with homesickness or they have autism. It could be a variety of reasons. Whatever reason prevents them from leaving home and serving away from home, but they still have that desire that they want to serve, then they can serve a service mission. And this is important. When we read Doctrine and Covenants 4, verse 3, the only identifier to serve a mission it says if ye have desires to serve ye are called to the work now i love this scripture if you study this scripture you will see that it was given in 1829 1829 the church was restored in 1830 a year before the restoration the lord found it important enough to teach this principle to joseph smith Before he restored the church, he was teaching that anyone who had the desire to serve was called to the work. It does not say if you are amazingly strong and can go to China and learn Chinese and be away for two years and never have a moment of anxiety and da-da-da and da-da-da. It does not say that. It says if you, in your heart, feel that you want to serve the Lord, we call you, we need you, we love you, we want you. That's what it says. And any young man who has the priesthood is called to the work. Every young woman is invited by the prophet to pray and find out if they are called to serve. If a prophet tells you to pray about it, you sure get down on your knees and find out if you need to serve. It's important to do this past April conference. That's what he invited all girls to do. The sister missionaries are very important in the work. And we have at the moment, 
when we think we have nine missionaries that have been set apart and we have two that are on their way with their papers and one more is filling in her papers. So we have a great group of sisters and elders who um, one struggles with anxiety and with um, she doesn't do well away from home. She, yeah, she has a whole bunch of challenges. Uh, one sister has a ton of autoimmune diseases. One sister has uh, the mental capacity of a very young child. We have an elder who has autism and he has um, epilepsy. Let me tell you about this elder. We went to a young single adult camp. We talk very passionately about the service mission. We brought one of our service missionaries with us. We're teaching this class. He's sitting there like most service missionary candidates on the back row. Mm -hmm. My husband sees this kid. He goes to him and he says, tell me a bit about yourself. Who are you? With tears in his eyes after hearing about the service mission, he says, now, now I know I can serve a mission. This boy has epilepsy and autism. And for years, he has been told that he will never serve, that he will never do great things, that he will never, never function in society like a normal, what does that word even mean? Like a normal human being. Well, he's an elder now and he's doing amazing things. He serves in the temple. He serves in a shop where they make um, they make all kinds of handiwork and they sell it for and the proceeds go to people with a, a disability. He makes these beautiful, beautiful things. He crochets. He's a man that crochets. Don't you just love a man that crochets? <laughs> That's amazing. That? <laughs> no, he's amazing. He has and he has such good eye for colors that go together. And then he goes to um, a home for disabled and older people and he takes their mail around and he drives these people to their appointments for the doctor in wheelchairs and so He does all of these things. And he lives in a home where other people with disabilities and struggles live. And for, we've been working together with him and with the people who are, um, you know, the, the caretakers of him. And in the beginning, it was like, ah, oh, this mission, and you can't put pressure on him, and he's never going to do anything this and that, and da-da-da, da-da-da. So we work together with them, and we talk with them, and we sit together with them. And now it's like, oh, this mission, and he's made so much of progress, and maybe he might live by himself one day, and let's start working towards that goal. Wow. He is growing. He is making progress. He learned to conduct the music. Now in his ward, he is the assistant music conductor. He is preparing a concert for the stake. He is amazing. He's amazing. The day he had his interview with us to prepare for his mission, well, the day before, he came to our mission conference. And he's sitting there at our mission conference, and he has one of the worst epileptic fits I have ever seen. I had been prepared in my training as a service mission leader. And then this happens. And I turn to my husband and I go, thank goodness you have done your first aid training because I felt completely overwhelmed. I thought, whoa, how are we going to do this for three years? <laughs> I'm not ready for this. <laughs> Just went down. And I mean, down <laughs> right there in a restaurant. 
and police came and the ambulance came and he needed to be taken away. And I went with him and they stripped his clothes off and I saw way too much of him for, you know, he's a missionary and I was not prepared for that. <laughs> it was just all over the place. And he started throwing up and I had to jump out of the way because it was all there. And then they sent him home. And I'm like, you can't send him home. He's sick. You need to keep him. They're like, no, nah, no, nah, he'll be okay. He couldn't walk a straight line. And they stuck him in my car. So we took him home. The next day, who was in church with his hair all disheveled? And he was in church. And I said, how can you be in church? You were so sick yesterday. You need to rest. You know, if you have epilepsy and you have like a really, really bad attack, you need to rest a couple of days. And he said to me, he said, I'm going on a mission. I'm here for my interview. I will rest this afternoon. Wow. This is the faith of these kids. And they have been sitting on the back row all these years, and they have been overlooked because they have a challenge and people think they don't fit in the box. So they shouldn't serve or they can't serve or there's a reason why we shall not call them to do this or that. These kids are amazing. They are the chosen ones. And we get to work with them every single day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm jealous of your calling. <laughs> no, it's the best. <laughs> that is so cool. And it is so fun to see the passion that you have for it. Um, working with them. And I, I personally know a couple of, of the sisters that you're working with as well and love them dearly. They're amazing spirits, amazing people. You know, when I hear you talk about that and the way that, that these individuals have been treated in our congregation, in our Christian congregations, that breaks my heart. I would love for us to know how to do things differently. I don't think anyone comes in with the intent to hurt or to make someone feel that way, but yet they do, right? So mm -hmm. what can we do differently as a church family to reach out or to see these individuals with challenges differently, to see past perhaps what we see as barriers and love them for who they are and give them the opportunities to become? How can we change that mentality? I would say before my calling, um, I made all of the mistakes as well, because, you know, it's just, it's the way we sometimes are. Since I've been called as a service mission leader, I have found so much of strength and so much of answers by studying Christ and studying the New Testament and studying the way he did things. And it's maybe, it sounds so cliche, but when you look at someone, the way Christ looks at us. Oh, wow, how things change. If you see someone and we sometimes can look and say, well, they can't do this and they can't do that and this won't work and this won't work. But those are the wrong remarks or the wrong way to look at something. We must always ask ourselves, what can they do? How can they grow? What, how can they contribute? For us as service mission leaders, we must always look for what kind of um, opportunities that they can do and how they can serve. When you're looking at, say, for example, 
we have a sister missionary. She has the mental age of a five or a six-year-old. We've been asked many times the questions, well, how can she serve? What can she do? How can she contribute? And I must say, sometimes I get quite offended when someone asks me that, and I'm so passionate about this work. Some, my, my human re- response would be, slap, slap, slap on their head. Like, how can you even <laughs> ask this question? <laughs> well, you know, but then I think like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. And then you should think like, think about what she can do. You know, she gives the greatest hugs. She can greet people in church. She can go to the temple and she can be baptized for all the people who have passed, have been, you know, have died. And can you imagine when President Nelson stands there on the stand and he's talking about gathering Israel and we hear this all the time and we hear this all the time. And so many people don't think about what it means to gather Israel. Every single time you help someone set a step on the covenant path, you're helping gathering Israel. So that means every time you're going to the temple, you're doing, you're helping someone receive covenants, you are gathering Israel. So this sister missionary who maybe doesn't understand everything, but has the desire to serve and wants to be in the temple and is willing to sit still on a chair and have someone put their hands on her head. And, you know, do all of that and go into that baptismal font. She's helping gathering Israel. Why should we as people say, well, no, she can't do that because she can't do anything. Of course she can. She can. She can do it. So we look for ways how these people can help. That's what we do. We find ways for how people can do it. And we help them be successful because that's how they grow. And while they are growing, oh boy, how do we grow? Because our hearts change. They become like Christ. We see them as Christ sees them. And our love changes. It's amazing. It's amazing what happens when you look at someone and you think, how can I help them reach their potential? I love that. And how true is that that when we give and when we choose to make different choices, right? That God compounds those efforts and makes us the ones the receivers of of those blessings too thank you I I wouldn't have thought of that and I appreciate your your thoughts on that I think how often when I've been confronted in some of these situations I feel awkward right and I think I don't want to make assumptions I don't want to offend but I love what Brene Brown says where she encourages us to stay awkward brave and kind this idea that if you don't put yourself out there Sure, you might not feel awkward, but is that really worth giving up someone else feeling loved? Mm-hmm. Is that really worth giving up um, us both coming closer to Christ? So I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I'm going to do better. I'm going to think more of what, what can those around me do um, mm-hmm. and be willing to be awkward, brave and kind. <laughs> really is it's and you know sometimes we're so worried about offending someone Mm -hmm. or saying the wrong words that we don't say anything at all yes but you know what it's sometimes better to go and put your arm around someone you don't always have to say something you can just be silent and put your arm around them and if you're not good at putting your arm around them because you don't feel comfortable doing that then say something Okay, you may say something that might be not the right words, but by not saying anything at all, you're not doing anything at all. 
So right. it's better to try and maybe you fail, but if you're not doing anything at all, you're not even trying. So just try. Most of these people are the most loving and most forgiving and most accepting people that I know. So why would you not try? You know, you might gain a whole bunch of friends that you didn't even know you could have. Thank you for sharing your brilliant testimony and thoughts with us today. I want to end our time together with the question, why are you, Melissa, still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? <laughs> I love that question. Um, I was thinking about that. And um, you know what? I once read this story about the pioneers and it told, it's a fictional story, but it told about a family and there was this one character in the book and he died just as the family was leaving Nauvoo and they buried him on the way. They didn't go back. It could have easily gone back to Nauvoo and buried him there, but he was buried on the way out because he wanted to be remembered that he listened to the prophet and he was on his way to, well, what eventually became Salt Lake. And I thought a lot about that as I read that. And I said to myself, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to, till the day I die, I want to just keep going I want to keep doing it. And I just, I made that decision. And when I look back on my life, I think I made that decision in that tent on my knees. I heard the Lord speak to me and it was something so simple. It wasn't like, oh, this is all the truth. And now you know everything about that. No, it wasn't. It was, you prayed. I answered your prayer. There's a small seed of testimony there. And I decided to grow it and work further on that. And for me, that was my starting point, my real starting point as, as who I am now. And I just want to keep going. And I hope that, you know, if, if I was in that story, in that fictional story, I would not have wanted to go back to Nauvoo and have a wonderful burial. I have, would have wanted to be buried on the way to just keep going, keep do, doing it, because I knew it when I was on my knees then. I know it now and I will know it till the day I die. And that's how I want to live my life. I want to keep working, keep serving, keep doing and just keep going. And one of our, we have service mission advisors. He said, I would be happy if I died digging a ditch because then I would be serving. And that's how I want to go. And I thought, yeah, that's how I want to go as well. Let's do that together. <laughs> That's how I want to live my life because I felt it. I know it. And that's what I want to do. So hang on to that feeling. Once you know it, hang on to it. It's like what they say in Alma. Once you felt that seed sprout up and you keep on nourishing it, keep on doing it because you will keep on feeling it and then just keep on going. Let's do it together. I think that's a yes. great, <laughs> great encouragement. I hope that all of our listeners can feel that too. Let's all do it together. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing the podcast. That's why we're reaching out. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for your inspiring words today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Still Rowing, a High Five Live podcast. For updates on episode releases and additional motivation and resources, you can find us on Facebook at High Five Live. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please give us a positive review on your podcast app and like us on the High Five Live Facebook page to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.